An unexamined life is not worth living. An unexamined life is not worth living. That was Socrates. I don't normally quote Socrates at the beginning of my sermons, but that's who said that. On trial at the end of his life, commanded to stop teaching his philosophy, Socrates was convinced that he would rather die than to stop considering the meaning of his life. I think he was onto something. You know, why, why are we here? Where did I come from? Why do I suffer? What's my hope beyond this life? These aren't easy questions. And yet it seems that we often fail to consider these questions not because they're hard, but because we're busy. Right? We, we, we obsess with filling our lives with, with busyness, with entertainment, with activities, with apps. It, it, it almost makes you wonder if you're, if you're really trying to fill something in or keep something out. As Pascal said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And yet, in spite of our best efforts to, of leading an unexamined life, these questions do have a way of finding us, don't they? Now, we expect them to come in times of intense suffering and loss. And they certainly do. But they also come to us in unexpected times. Uh, for some... It comes when they get to the top. Maybe you heard Tom Brady's interview after winning his third Super Bowl. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reach my goal, my dream, my life, and I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this, it, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. For others, it, it comes to them near the end of their lives. Lee Iacocca, the, the legendary car maker, writes this in his autobiography. Here I am in the twilight years of my life, and I'm still wondering what it's all about. I can tell you this, fame and fortune is for the birds. Alfred Nobel, uh, the man who accomplished so much and, and after whom those celebrated prizes are named, he wrote this near his death. How pitiful to strive to be someone or something in the motley crowd of 1.4 billion two-legged tailless apes whining around on our revolving earth projectile. You know, the, the, the unexamined life is not worth living, and yet it turns out also that the unexamined life is hardly possible. We can't help but examine our lives. Sooner or later we will come face to face with our existence. But what are we going to find? Cynicism? Meaninglessness? Or will we find the truth that God offers to us? We've come to the end of our study of Malachi, and here at the end of the prophets, at the end of the Old Testament, God is giving his people everything they need to face a future of, of uncertainty, of questions, as we study this text this morning, ask yourself the big question. What am I hoping in? And how does that compare with the hope that God gives us here? All right, look with me in Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 13, page 1490 in the Pew Bibles. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You've said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly, the evildoers prosper. Even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard. 
A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you, who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Israel's situation at the time of this letter was pretty grim. Remember, God had brought them back to the promised land after a long exile, but they're still not free. No, this is the land that God had given them, but they live under the rule of a foreign king. It's as if you, you built your dream house, but then the bank forecloses on you, and you're kicked out. You finally get things together, you're able to move back into your home, except now you're paying a ridiculous rent in the home that you used to own. Right? That, that's what it's like for Israel. They're paying rent to live in the, house, in, in the land that was supposed to be theirs. And, and as far as Israel can tell, there's no imaginable way out of this situation. They don't have an army. They don't have wealth. They don't have any political leverage. They're out of options. This oppression is going to continue forever unless God intervenes. I wonder if anyone here this morning feels that way about this world, about their lives. God, unless you act, things aren't going to change. Malachi has good news for us this morning. God will act. But will we put our hope in him? I want you to use this text to examine yourself this morning. You know, as God exposes false hopes, and as God reveals our true hope, I want you to ask yourself four questions. And this is the outline of my sermon. Four questions. Number one, what beliefs am I basing my life on? What beliefs am I basing my life on? Number two, does God notice how I live? Number three, what happens after this life? And number four, am I sure, am I sure that hope will come? I pray that today would be one more step along a journey where you come to find true hope in the end. All right, so first, what beliefs am I basing my life on? Look again with me there in verse 13. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper. And even those who challenge God escape. You know, we've been hearing God's case against Israel throughout this book and in this last charge that God brings uh, to them, we, we hear Israel's hopelessness, right? It, it, it's futile. It's worthless to serve God. Why bother obeying these laws? Why bother fasting and mourning and praying? I mean, it, it all ends up the same for everyone, doesn't it? 
in fact, the person who is devout is actually worse off than the wicked because it's the wicked who get ahead in life. It's evildoers who prosper. And they're all going to get away with it in the end. Can you see how believing this would cause you to feel hopeless? Especially if you were the one who was the victim of injustice. You know, survival of the fittest works if you're surviving. But if you're the one being trampled on, you quickly understand that something is wrong. If there is no reward for living a good life, there is no reward for serving God, if there is no punishment for sin, then what does it matter how, how anyone lives? What, what I mainly want us to see here, though, in, in this point, is, is that Israel's hopelessness and, and subsequent disobedience didn't just come out of nowhere, like out of thin air. No, it came out of what they were believing about God. Whether they were saying this aloud or under their breaths, this is what these people believed. And if you'll think back to preceding passages, you can see that the effect that these thoughts had on them. They, they, they are bringing worthless offerings to the temple. I mean, what does it matter, right? They're abandoning their marriages. It doesn't matter that what they believe about God is false. The point is, is that they believed it. And therefore, their lives were shaped accordingly. And you can imagine the cycle that this produces. The more they believe in these lies, the more they pursue a life apart from God. The more they pursue a life apart from God, the more those lies are confirmed, leading to further hopelessness, further unbelief. Well, until the day that God interrupts all of that. We have to ask ourselves this question, therefore. What beliefs about God am I basing my life on? What beliefs about God am I basing my life on? We all believe something about God. Even if you don't believe in a God, that's a belief about God, right? Nobody is neutral on this point. So what do you believe? What do you believe about God's goodness? What do you believe about God's authority? About his involvement in your life? About his character? About his mercy? Whether you've ever thought this through, or whether this is something that you just kind of live out implicitly and subconsciously, we all believe something about God, and that shapes how we live. As A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You know, from the beginning, when we look at the storyline of Scripture, the, the battle for mankind has always been a battle for the mind, a, a battle for belief. Beginning there in Genesis 3, Satan comes to the woman and he whispers to her, did God really say, planting seeds of doubt in her mind about God's character, about God's commands? Satan doesn't come as a roaring lion at that point. No, he comes as a lying snake, deceiving. And ever since, we have continued to fall for his lies. Every temptation that Satan brings into your life is connected to a lie about God that you're being tempted to believe. That's the case here in our text. Israel's hopelessness and sin was based on the lie that serving God is futile and that there is no justice. Uh, maybe that's some of us this morning. You look at the world around you, you get these, these email forwards that are just so discouraging, and you think, man, th this only keeps getting worse. Why, why do I bother praying? What difference can, can my little actions make? What does it matter how I live? Maybe your hopelessness is not, is not about current events. Maybe it's about your own life. You know, you've messed up a relationship so bad that you're not sure whether God can fix it. You, you, you've sinned against God so bad that you're not sure, you can't imagine God bringing wholeness and healing back into your life. And so, in all your discouragement, you think, why bother? 
Why even do anything about that? Maybe your temptation is the opposite. Maybe you're not hopeless. Maybe your temptation is pride, right? Any proud people here this morning, right? Um, you know, you'd probably never say this, but in, in your heart of hearts, you believe that everything you have is because of your hard work and your good planning, right? Your, your family, your job, your ministry, your retirement. Yeah, God provided for you, but God helps those who help themselves, and, and you helped yourself. You're right there with them, figuring it out, working together with God to bring about all that you have. And so, of course, you look down on people who don't have things together. Uh, the last thing you would ever do is ask for anyone's help. Maybe your temptation is materialism. You live for this world. You, you like shopping. You like cars, vacations, nice homes. And the reason for that is because in your heart, you're really not sure what God's reward is going to be. You're really not sure about heaven. I mean, how, how good can heaven really be, right? Floating on heavens, uh, an eternal worship service? Who, who wants that? You know that the Bible says heaven is going to be great, but, but you know, life here in America is pretty good. It's, it's kind of a Disneyland, isn't it? Uh, th- things are going well, you're healthy. So can, can heaven really be better than what I have now? And... If it is better, well, then I'll probably get heaven too when I die, even after I enjoy this life. Maybe your temptation is lust. You're, you're tempted by pornography. You're tempted by an inappropriate relationship at work. What wrong belief lies behind that? Well, there, there might be so many. But perhaps most fundamentally, you believe that God isn't really loving. Because if God loved you, why would he withhold this obviously good thing from you? God must not be after your greatest joy. Because if I actually try to obey him, I'm going to end up living an unfulfilled life. I'll end up missing out on all that this life has to offer. Boy, that that just starts sounding a lot like what the Israelites were believing, doesn't it? You get the picture. What, what we believe about God matters. And therefore, in whatever situation you find yourself in, you need to ask yourself this question. Trace your life all the way back to what you believe about God in that moment. It's not going to be obvious right away because, because these thoughts are so natural to us. We, we believe what we believe. Deception is subtle. But this is where we have to begin. This is where it's really helpful to have Christian friends who are close to you, who can ask you good questions and help you see yourself in the mirror of God's word. If you're a non-Christian here today, so glad that you're here. So glad that you're here, particularly to hear this. I mean, I know that, that living here in the, in, in the 21st century, it's, it's not politically correct to talk like this. You tell someone that they have a wrong idea of God and you're labeled as intolerant, right? really fast. But that's only because we have bought into the presupposition that there is no absolute truth when it comes to matters of religion. You know, intolerance works in that setting. But we would never apply the, the label of intolerance when it comes to matters of, of our health or of science. Right? It, we understand that it's not loving to allow someone to, in, in a drug addiction, to continue thinking they have everything under control. Right? We know that it's not loving to allow parents to leave sick children untreated because they think that their superstition will magically heal them. No, we understand that when it comes to these issues, it doesn't matter how sincere people are. If, if their beliefs are based on lies, then it's not loving to leave them in that lie. To actually tolerate the lie would be unloving. And if that's true for something as temporal as caring for our bodies, wouldn't it be also true for caring for people's eternal souls? If there really is a God who has revealed himself to us, then wouldn't love mean doing all that we can to know him rightly and to help others know him rightly? Love rejoices with the truth. So, examine yourselves. What beliefs about God are you basing your life on? 
Number two, ask yourself this. Does God notice how I live? Does God notice how I live? Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. The question that we're facing with, that we're faced with here, is what kind of God is out there? Right? Is he the God who, who winds up the clock, sets the universe in motion, and walks away, leaving us to, to just kind of figure things out for ourselves? Or is he the God who creates the world and then amazingly enters into the story of this world, becoming intimately involved with us, his creation? Does God notice how we live? It seems that behind the the complaints that we saw earlier, the the people in Malachi's day had believed in this clock-winding God. But here we see in verse 16 that there are some who do not. There are some who fear the Lord. And look at what they do. They come together. They talk to one another about God, about what it means to fear him. They commit themselves to living that way. That's what this scroll of remembrance is. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. Similar to the lists of names that we see there in Ezra and Nehemiah, people here are writing their names down to commit themselves to fearing and obeying God once again. Side note, membership class coming up. If you've ever asked yourself, where, does church, where is church membership in the Bible? This is not the church. But God-fearing Christians are writing names down in lists as a way to express their covenant with God. It sounds like church membership in some ways. All right, that's for free. All right. Notice, they do this and God hears. God pays attention to them. He he notices their commitment. He assures them of his love. Even though verse 17 is looking to the future, uh, this assurance is meant to encourage them now, in the present. You know, it's not like if you keep up the good work, then I'll love you on that day. No, no, even now they're to believe that God has noticed their obedience and that he loves them. And he looks forward to the day when he will receive them as his sons and daughters. Here in this text is God's gracious preservation of a remnant within Israel. Throughout redemptive history, there have been times when darkness reigned, when truth was just a flicker. Yet no matter how dark things got, God has always been faithful to preserve for himself a people. A people who swim against the current. A people who hold fast to the truth in the midst of unbelief. What we need to understand is that while we live in the fallen world, fearing God will always happen in the context of unbelief. There will never be an age where fearing God is easy, where it's like the popular thing to do. And yet God is faithful to always preserve a people for himself. I I want you particularly to notice what this looks like. Notice what these people do. They talk to one another. They don't just stay at home and watch TV preachers. No, no, they, they come together and they talk to each other. One person looks around the room and he says, Look, look, there's someone else who fears God. Uh, I'm going to go over to him. I'm going to go talk to him. I'm going to have him over to my home. But, but when he comes, we're not going to talk about baseball. We're not going to talk about the rain. We're not going to talk about our vacation plans. There's, there's plenty of other people you can do that with. No, finally, here's someone who fears God. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to share about our mutual fear and love of God. It wasn't enough just to hear Malachi deliver God's word. No, now they wanted to make a point of it to talk about it to each other and to encourage one another in it. Eventually, a small community forms around that, that practice about their mutual fear of God. And so they covenant together to support one another and to hold fast to one another in this. 
Isn't this a picture of, again, what we're supposed to be about as a local church? I mean, here we are in Portland, Oregon. I don't know if you've noticed, there are not many Christians in this city. You're surrounded by non-Christians at work, in the marketplace, in your neighborhoods, in your schools, and, and they're, they're, they're nice people. They're kind people. You can talk about all kinds of things with them. But now you're at church, and you're with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. These are Christians. So why would you only talk about those things again? Why wouldn't you take advantage of your mutual relationship with God? And of course, don't limit yourself to Sundays. Find a way to get together with people from the church during the week, at least once a week. I don't say this to to put another burden on you. No, I say this for your own good. This is what we need. We need encouragement. We need fellowship. This could be a small group. This could be a weekday Bible study. This could be having people over to your home to talk about the sermon. This could be simply finding someone who works near you and getting together for lunch to, to pray together. I'm not saying you have to be weird about it, okay? It's not like every passing conversation with a Christian needs to turn into a 30-minute prayer meeting. But if you don't have anyone that you can fellowship with during the week, I think you're missing out. Can you think of one person here at Henson that you could intentionally pursue in order to have this kind of intentional conversation during the week? If you're unsure of what that looks like, boy, talk to any one of the elders. We would love to help you think through what that looks like. It's, you know, in this passage, it's this kind of intentional, interactive, committed life that attracts God's attention. But of course, the truth is that God sees everything, right? In fact, God noticed everything that was said about him in the previous few verses. God sees everything. He is not the distant God. This is where Christians get the old idea of coram Deo, of living one's entire life in the face of God. It's, it's to live with the understanding that whatever we are doing, wherever we are doing it, we are acting, we are speaking, we are thinking under the gaze of God. It's to live with an acute awareness that God is sovereign over our lives and that we exist not by our own autonomy, but under his kingship. It's living a life of integrity, of honor, of wholeness that finds its unity and coherency in God. Not out of fear of punishment, but but out of adoration and gratitude to a God who has loved us and spared us. The opposite of this is when we compartmentalize our lives. Why are we so good at dividing our lives into the religious and the non-religious? Really? Well, it's because we like to be in charge. God, you can have this, but not that. God, God, you can have my entire life, except for this little thing right here in my back pocket. Friends, either all of life is religious or none of it is. Either God notices how we live or he doesn't. What this means is that we have to stop thinking that Monday through Saturday is my secular life and Sunday is my religious life. I understand that there are things that we do that are particularly focused on spreading the gospel and that's important. We don't want to lose that. But there's also a sense in which a person fulfilling their vocation as a lawyer, as a homemaker, as a contractor, is every bit as religious as the pastor who gets up to preach on Sunday morning. Because in, in all that we do, we do before the face of God, in church or out of church, before people or alone. We live life openly. We are laid bare before God. Martin Luther King Jr. puts it like this. When you discover what you will be in your life, set out to do it as if God Almighty called you at this particular moment in history to do it. If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, street, sweep streets 
like Michelangelo painted pictures, sweep streets like Beethoven composed music, sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry, sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Does God notice how we live? Yeah. Yes, he does. More than we realize. And therefore, how we live matters for eternity. Number three, to examine our life, you have to ask a question. You, this, is, this is really important. You have to ask this question. What happens after this life? What happens after I die? Right? Is it, is it nothingness? Or is it something more? Look at verse 3. Uh, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18. You will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. You know, we live in a world where thou shalt not judge has become the 11th commandment. There are people today who would consider judging evil worse than doing evil. Yet for for all of our opposition to judging, there are times when we come face to face with raw, naked evil. I don't have to take the time to list those examples. If you've encountered it, you know it. And if you haven't yet, you will one day. And in that moment when we encounter evil, all of our relativism all of our non-judgmentalism, it counts for nothing. Instinctively, intuitively, we cry out for justice. We are ready to condemn evil unconditionally. As Os Guinness says, the atheist who lets fly, God damn it, in the face of clear evil, is right, not wrong. In spite of our discomfort with judgment, the question of what happens after this life is a question that defines our hope. Will there be justice in the end? True justice. Justice that is not left to the hands of corrupt men, but but justice that is administered by a good and wise and righteous king. Or will the silence of eternity simply be an unending continuation of the injustices of this life? Well, the Bible has a clear answer. There will be judgment by God on all people. And according to this passage, it's very clear what the purpose of that judgment will be. On Judgment Day, God will make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked between those who serve God and those who do not. Henson's own statement of faith puts it like this. We believe in the bodily resurrection of the just and unjust, the eternal blessedness of the saved, and the eternal punishment of the lost. Eternal blessedness, eternal punishment. This is what Scripture teaches But we shouldn't miss the rich imagery that Malachi gives us here. Imagine a prairie in the middle of summer. It hasn't rained for weeks. Grass and the leaves are dry. The ground is covered with tinder. And the sun is rising in the sky. It's going to be a hot day. Suddenly, something catches a reflection and a fire starts. A blaze starts. Pretty soon the entire field is devastated by the fire until nothing is left. 
But now imagine another prairie. It's been a dark, cold season. These calves have have borne the winds and the rains all night long. But now a new day is dawning. The, The sun rises in the sky, bringing warmth and life in its rays. And before long, the sky is swept clear. It's a beautiful and glorious day. And these calves, now filled with life and strength, they rise to their feet and they leap for joy. And they even leap over to that other prairie where all they find is ashes. You see what's happening here? On that day, the arrival of the same God will mean destruction for some, but life for others. The distinction couldn't be more clear Burned, devastated leaves versus calves brought to life, leaping for joy. You know, what we see here in this text are images. We're not to take this literally. Will there be a literal furnace? Will there be a literal sun? Well, well, no, clearly this is a sun of righteousness. The heat of this sun will not be about temperature, but about holiness. So, so yes, these are images. But the point of an image is not to communicate something less, but to point to something even greater. Right? When I say that my wife is a precious jewel, I'm not trying to say that she's less valuable than a jewel. I'm trying to say that she's so valuable that maybe the best thing I can think of is a precious jewel. But, but she's more valuable than even that. So, so when we read... Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. Every evildoer will be stubble. Realize that this is pointing us to a reality that perhaps is even worse than we can even imagine. God's judgment will be like a fire that consumes everything until nothing, no root, no branch is left. But what is it really going to be like? And yet, for those who revere his name, there will be healing, there will be life, there will be leaping for joy. This also is an exuberance, a vitality, a joy that we can't even begin to imagine. Again, I understand that this talk of heaven and hell, of judgment, goes against all the political correctness of our day. And let me assure you, if, if you're fearful of talking about this, that this is nothing new. This is not unique to our modern age. People have always found God's judgment offensive. But what's the alternative, right? If you say that there is no judgment, then what kind of world does that leave you with? You're right back to the hopelessness of verses 14 and 15. Is that better? Or more importantly, is that even true? You know, the Bible gives us this picture of the day of the Lord, and in our sin, we shrink back. And there's the irony. For us to complain about the coming judgment is like a criminal complaining about his sentence. Well, of course you're going to complain. There's no way for us to impartially hear about God's coming judgment because in our heart of hearts, we know that we are among those who have broken his law. But I want you to notice something. We have to keep in mind that that God, that the day of the Lord brings to us more than just justice. It brings hope. Don't take it for granted that not everyone will be destroyed. There are some who will survive that day. And if that's the case, then the far more important question is, how do we get on that side? Because if you can get to that side then you are entering into a world that is far different from anything that this world can offer. A world that is free from curse and death and brokenness. A world that is free from sin and evil. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God assures you that you have made it to that side. That this is your hope. 
The Son of Righteousness is coming with healing in its wings. We will one day leap like calves set free. You know, I, I pray that as Christians, we would not wait until we're old and sick and shut in before we finally begin to realize that heaven is our only hope. Right? I mean, that's the danger, isn't it? I think that, that the more we're, we, we find ourselves enjoying this life, the less we think of heaven. You know, people can preach to you all day about how wonderful heaven is going to be, but if you, if you just love this world, you're not going to be really that convinced. Instead of waiting to the end, instead of waiting until you know, we've lost all of our earthly comforts that we finally start kind of longing for heaven, what would happen if Christians, if members of this church, in their prime, in their strength, with all the resources that God has given us, against all the expectations of an unbelieving world, what would happen if we began to live in belief that this day is coming? We began to put our hope in the day of the Lord. What would happen? What, what bold outreach ventures would we attempt for the gospel? What generosity would we begin to show? How would discipleship and marriages and hospitality and personal holiness be transformed? I, I, we could take the time to unpack that. This would be a great thing to talk about over lunch. But you get the idea. These are questions worth asking and, and comparing your life to. Examine yourselves, friends. What do you believe about this? What happens after this life? And therefore, what kind of people ought you be? Finally, one last question. One last question. Am I sure that hope will come? Am I sure that hope will come? Look at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. How can we know that this day of the Lord is coming? Is there a sign that we can look for? Yeah, yes, there is. God is going to send a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. And this prophet is going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. He's not going to do that by, by setting up a parade or, or opening up a palace. No, no, in verse 6, we see that he's going to do that by calling people to repentance, back to faith in God. That, that's what the statement is all about, about turning their hearts of fathers to children, children to their fathers. You know, it could be a reference to the fifth commandment, representing a return to the Mosaic law. You know, it could also be just the, the use of a common idiom of that day where, where when you talk about you know, fathers and children, meaning all people. Um, this, this is a reference to, to the people turning back to one another in love and faithfulness and concern for each other. Whatever way you go, the point is clear. This prophet is calling the people back to God, back to faithfulness to him. You know, throughout the world, Many people are waiting for this Elijah. You'll remember this past spring, we, we uh, observed the, the, the Passover Seder with, uh, with Josh Sofer. Um, he led us through that meal. And you know, at, at one point, we, we poured out this cup um, for Elijah. And you know, we were supposed to go and open the front door and, and, and wait for Elijah to come. You know, the Jewish people are still waiting for Elijah to show up. Because they know clearly from this passage that when he comes, God will also come. So who is this prophet? Who is this man? We read earlier in the service from Matthew 4 about John the Baptist. This is what Jesus says about him in Matthew 11. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John, John the Baptist. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. 
This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Verse 14, And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. Which raises then the question, if John the Baptist is Elijah, then, then who is Jesus? What does that make Jesus? Because that, that's why Jesus asked the phrase, and if you are willing to accept it. it. It wasn't hard to accept that John the Baptist was this prophet. Now, his ministry fit exactly what Malachi is describing as far as coming in the spirit of Elijah. Now, what's hard to believe, perhaps, is what this means then about who Jesus is. Because that means he is none other than Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. God Almighty has visited his people. When we read the life of Jesus, this is exactly what we would expect if God were to walk among us. The dead are raised, the hungry are fed, sickness and demons flee. He calms the winds and the waves with just a word. But we're also surprised by, by several things. We're surprised to see his tender compassion, his patience towards sinners and outcasts. We're surprised by his radical teaching. We're surprised by his humility, his poverty. Most of all, we're surprised to see him suffer. Jesus, at the end of his life, is arrested. He's tortured. He's condemned. And he's crucified. What happened to the day of the Lord? Wasn't it supposed to be evildoers who are condemned? So what in the world is God doing on a cross? There on the cross, Jesus is alone. He's forsaken. He's cursed. And he dies. Darkness covers the land. It would seem that the day of the Lord didn't bring any hope. No, it only brought more death and sin. What does it all mean? But three days later, on that first Easter morning, the stone is rolled away and the Son of Righteousness is raised. What does it all mean? With the arrival of John the Baptist, just as Malachi prophesied, the day of the Lord had come. But it did not come upon us. No, it came upon Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord was brought forward in history to a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The wrath of God against sin was poured out on Jesus Christ, not for his sins, but for the sins of his people. The, The fire of God's judgment raged like a furnace, and Christ was consumed like stubble. The day of the Lord had arrived. And before a watching world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died. In all of our nervousness about the coming day of the Lord, who would have ever imagined this scenario, that the God who is coming to judge is also the God who comes to bear our judgment. And so in his death, we have hope. The Son of God rose from the dead with healing in his wings, healing for our sin, healing for our broken relationship with God, for all who will turn away from their sin and place their trust in Jesus Christ. God promises to forgive you of all those sins and begin a process of healing, of sanctification that will one day culminate in glory. Today, our our fallen bodies might not allow us to leap like calves, but our hearts have been made new. And all the joy and hope that we need has been given to us in Christ so that when he returns and when he makes us new, yeah, we will leap. Friends, can we be sure that hope will come? Yes, because Elijah has come. God has kept his promises. His messenger has come, and he has come as a forerunner to that great day of the Lord, both the first one and the last one. 
John the Baptist's message still rings out today. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. God the King will one day return to take back this world that is rightfully His. The rebels will be burned to stubble. But those who have made peace with God through the sacrifice of His Son, who have submitted their lives in fear and obedience, they will be spared. and They will be loved and welcomed into His royal family, received as His treasured possession. The King is coming. His kingdom is coming. He's announced it through Malachi. He's announced it through John. And he announces it to you this morning through his word. Will you believe? And will you dare hope? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our trust is not in this life. This life will soon come to an end. We will arrive on that day and we will wonder at our own foolishness for having put so much stock into this life, into this world. Oh God, we acknowledge, we believe now that you are coming back and that Sin will be defeated and destroyed and that your people will be saved. So God, help us to order our lives accordingly. Help us to live according to that belief. Thank you for, thank you for telling us that this is coming. And we pray that, that those of us here would respond in faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.